0: Don't miss ACEC's next private market symposium on the commercial and residential real estate market taking place in Scottsdale, Arizona on March 3rd and 4th. Register today to meet leaders in business, land development, engineering, and construction to network and discuss the hot button issues surrounding this growing market. What does the post COVID office market look like? How will growth in the industrial distribution market meet the growing demand for e-commerce? How will demographics shape suburban growth? These questions and more will be covered at the event. Act now, space is limited. Go to ACEC.org to register. ACEC has just published a new book, Climate Change and the Built Environment. Obviously that's a big and complex issue to tackle. And to accomplish that, the book is a collaborative effort with the chapters and case studies written by experts from a variety of professional backgrounds and geographical regions of the country. The task of capturing all that expertise and insight into the book fell to two co-editors, Patricia Gary, who is of counsel at the law firm of Donovan Hatem in Boston, and Lisa Churchill, who is the founder of Climate Advisory in Portland, Maine. Gary, who also wrote three chapters in the book, has joined us on the program. Welcome. Thank you, Jerry. So so you co-edited the book along with Lisa Churchill, and it includes 11 chapters and five case studies written by 16 authors, all of whom are women. That's quite a project. Um, Yes, The,
1: the book is a unique collaboration of women authors who are architects, engineers, lawyers, and insurance experts. And it's intended to be a primer on climate change, the topics for the chapters and the case studies in the book, as you said, we were selected to represent our entire country, which is geographically vast and diverse and poses very different climate risks depending upon the location. Um, design professionals from different disciplines share their expertise in designing climate resilient infrastructure, including buildings, roads, bridges, stormwater systems, parks, and green spaces in New England the mid Atlantic and south, and the lake regions of the Midwest. And there's a chapter on transportation infrastructure in the mountains of Colorado, and an insurance chapter which addresses wildfire risk in California and the West. And part two is a legal section, which is written by legal experts and addresses the liability concerns and legal aspects of climate change.
0: So, 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 as I mentioned in the intro, you also wrote three chapters in this, and, and in, your, in the opening chapter, which sort of opens the book, you uh, provide a historical overview and lay out the scientific evidence of humankind's role in climate change, and I found that to be very so sobering. What, what stands out for you in that chapter as a particularly potent piece of evidence?
1: Well, I wrote the opening chapter to provide some historical context. Since the Industrial Revolution, human burning of fossil fuels like coal and oil has increased the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide, exacerbating what is known as a greenhouse effect. And our modern understanding of climate change really rests upon the pioneering contributions of scientists in the 1800s. So chapter one, traces the scientific discovery of climate change which began in the early 19th century and culminated in the IPCC's fifth assessment report, which then led to the Paris Agreement. And early scientists made advancements in climate modeling and they published the papers that inspired future generations. So to me, um, Charles Keeling, who began to measure atmospheric carbon dioxide at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, and the Keeling curve, which is now an iconograph stands out as the most potent piece of evidence linking climate change to human combustion of fossil fuels. The Keeling curve shows steadily increasing annual concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since 1958, and Keeling's carbon dioxide measurements are still continuing today. So it is really sobering that in May of 2021, the observatory recorded a carbon dioxide average of 419 parts per million which is the highest in human history. And the last time Earth's atmosphere had carbon dioxide levels above 400 parts per million was the Pliocene epoch, which is 4.1, or I'm sorry, 4.5 million years ago before humans existed. And Earth was really nothing like the world we
0: inhabit today. As I said, very sobering. Um, in, in the first two chapters, there's a there's a recurring theme about the balance between economic and ethical considerations, and this seems kind of important to me, you know, up to now, economic considerations have been dominant, but do you, do you sense potent, potent, a potential switch perhaps in the future? Um, does there have to be one? And, and if, there, if there were a switch to more ethical concerns, how, how would that happen?
1: Well, my first two chapters do raise ethical concerns about intergenerational equity, meaning that business as usual climate policies create extremely serious costs and impacts for future generations. Um, The concept of intergenerational equity is that every generation must fulfill its obligation to the next generation to protect the climate system and preserve the earth and its natural resources. And the related ethical issue of environmental justice addresses the unfair distribution of the negative effects of climate change on the poor and other vulnerable populations But on the bright side, the world is beginning to realize that we cannot afford to not invest in climate action and that setting ambitious targets makes sense. And in addition, there's a growing recognition that the benefits of mitigation will exceed the costs. Many investors are actually taking note of the serious financial risks and costs associated with climate disasters, ranging from the flooding of our nation's coastal cities to fires that have burned large parts to the west droughts and crop failures, and disaster-related migrations of millions of people. There are high financial stakes for banks and mortgage portfolios um, when both real or financial assets decrease in value. And as a result, more and more governments are embracing policy changes to achieve decarbonization and net zero emissions by 2050 through investments in sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy.
0: Yeah, another uh, recurring theme um, in the book um, is, is the balance between adaptation and, and mitigation. And, and I think it's fair to say you assert that both are critical. Well, could, you, could you talk about, about that difference, that balance?
1: Well, chapter two is an overview of the concepts of mitigation and adaptation, because these are the two main strategies for responding to climate change in the built environment. And mitigation is the process of reducing and stabilizing the levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And adaptation is the process of anticipating the actual or expected climate and its adverse effects by taking appropriate action. So, mitigation and adaptation actions both build resilience into the built environment. They are complementary aspects of risk management and each manage different components of climate related risks, but they've generally been treated separately by researchers and practitioners. However, silo thinking about mitigation and adaptation could result in the technologies used for one intervention inadvertently having adverse implications on the other. So one important message of chapter two is to urge a holistic approach of integrating both mitigation and adaptation into the planning process of the project to capture their co-benefits and synergies. For example, with structural systems, including concrete, are some of the largest source of embodied carbon. But new technologies, such as green cement, are able to cut the embodied carbon emissions by a third. And similarly, using nature-based green infrastructure solutions instead of traditional gray infrastructure, increases carbon sequestration and mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions, and can simultaneously build resilience against surface temperature and heat waves and storm, stormwater runoff and extreme weather events. And then a second theme of chapter two is that with respect to adaptation, compliance with the standard of care usually requires more than mere compliance with public law. At a very minimum, the professional standard of care does require compliance with public law. For example, codes, regulations, statutes, and other mandatory requirements. But good design and best practices typically require more. And if the standard of care reflects an understanding that applicable codes and regulations are outdated, then a design professional's failure to consider the impacts of climate change could be construed by a trier of fact as professional negligence.
0: Wow. Um, sticking to the, the recurring theme uh, questions, um, you and your authors write that engineers and design professionals are, are uniquely uh, positioned to influence owners toward net zero, um, low regret strategies. I like that term, low regret strategies. But, but, but their actual ability to affect change is limited because the owner makes the final decision, and which is often economic. How do we get past that?
1: Well, the owner makes decisions about design direction, but increasingly clients are expecting design professionals to advise them about mitigation and their options to increase energy efficiency and renewable energy use, as well as to advise them about adaptive resilient design. Infrastructure must be designed to minimize the impacts of future climate risks, including extreme weather events and natural disasters. So depending upon locale, This could mean employing wind resistant, seismic resistant, or thermal resistant materials. And the challenge will be to accomplish these goals within the limits of the project's program, cost, and construction schedule. And for design professionals, effective risk management entails presenting the client with a range of options to fully inform the client's decisions. And ultimately, the owner makes the programmatic decisions and determines the risks that they are willing to accept. Um, But risk communication with clients is an important step in managing and reducing risk. When advising clients about climate risks and the need for adaptive designs, design professionals can protect themselves by documenting their advice in writing.
0: So you've you've mentioned um... The infrastructure and in grey infrastructure and in green infrastructure. and But the, the construction sector is the highest uh, single global emitter of greenhouse gases. And, um, and you document in, in, the, in your chapter that the alarming gap between the current action on greenhouse gas, gases within the industry and the scale of the action required. You know, for instance, less than 0.1%, 0.01% actually of all buildings are net zero. How do we narrow that gap?
1: Well, there's no universal definition for the metrics of net zero. Um, The carbon footprint of a built asset includes greenhouse gas emissions from operational use. That's what we tend to usually think of net zero. Um, For example, in order to operate, residential and commercial buildings use large quantities of energy for heating, cooling, lighting, and other needs. But there are also emissions from industrial processes, and the latter which is known as embodied carbon emissions, is the carbon footprint from emissions associated with raw material extraction, fabrication, manufacturing, and installation of building materials. Um, And structural systems are usually the largest source of embodied carbon. Concrete and steel are two of the most widely used man-made structural building materials in existence, but they're extremely carbon intensive because of their manufacturing processes. So transitioning to net zero emissions will depend upon the supply side of industry, finding a way to supply structural materials such as steel and cement or very close substitutes without adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And then electrification of end use services in buildings is also part of the strategy to achieve net zero operational emissions. Um, The building sector currently uses fossil fuels for space conditioning, water heating, cooking, and other end-use services. But by substituting electricity for fossil fuels and end-use services, significant reductions um, in carbon dioxide emissions can be achieved. And on a larger scale, achieving net zero emissions by the year 2050 will require the power sector to get renewables such as solar and wind online and meet our nation's electricity demand a clean electricity grid and there's really good news on this front because in november of 2021 congress just passed its historic 1.2 trillion infrastructure investment in jobs act which provides 73 billion to fund clean energy projects including new power lines and an electric grid with high voltage capacity Um, so extension and reinforcement of power grids is going to be essential to getting solar and wind renewables online and sharing them over geographical areas.
0: I mean, it, it's not just at the at the federal <laughs> level though, is it? it? I mean, a lot of a lot of states and cities have have, have, have uh, moved in this direction. Many have enacted uh, net zero laws. Um, do you do you see that trend continuing with more states uh, doing that? And and if so, what what impact would that have on on uh, the design professionals?
1: Well. In August of 2018, when I first approached Abby Goodman of the with the idea for this book, net zero was really a seldom heard term. But about two months later in October of 2018, the IPCC released its special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade, which describes the expected impacts of 1.5 and two degrees of warming above pre-industrial time. And the IPCC warned in its special report that to contain warming at 1.5 degrees will require the world to make rapid and far reaching transitions in land, energy, industry, buildings, transport, and cities. And global net human caused emissions would need to fall by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, reaching in quotes, net zero by around 2050. So the IPCC's warning of reaching net zero by around 2050 in its special report caused the term net zero to explode in the media. And it caused an outcry for immediate government action to address the climate emergency. And three years later, despite the intervening COVID-19 pandemic, which shifted our attention to the health crisis, 18 of our 52 states have issued executive orders or legislated the requirement for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. In December of 2021, just last month, the Biden administration issued an executive order which committed our federal government to reducing greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. So reaching net zero by 2050 is a defining and existential challenge of our time. And for design professionals, I really means designing differently to achieve energy savings and efficient, yet cost-effective methods for complying with state energy codes, municipal energy codes, and building codes. It presents enormous opportunities for design firms to take the lead with innovative, forward-thinking, mechanical and electrical designs and new technology. And there'll be an impetus on structural engineers to specify the right materials to reduce embodied carbon the net zero uh, target has profound implications for design professionals, as well as owners, contractors, and suppliers. The entire construction industry must prepare, be prepared to meet this challenge.
0: I'm, in your book, you, you, you also point out that there are risks um, uh, faced by uh, design professionals due to climate change. And in your third chapter, you, uh, you say that the, the standard of care is changing due to climate change. Um, and that's not necessarily uh, becoming more risky because well-crafted contract language can mitigate that risk, you, you, you point that out. What, what, what risks do engineers need to be aware of due to the impact of climate change?
1: Well, my third chapter is titled Contracting Practices and Risk Management. And climate change poses new risks associated with design and construction. But most of these risks can be managed through the party's contracts with precise and well-tailored language. A party's risk tolerance in a project will be affected by its ability to transfer the risk and parties must be prepared to negotiate their contract. And there's a legal distinction between a change in the standard of care due to climate change, meaning a change in the required skill and learning that must be reflected in design an elevation of the professional standard of care in a contractual provision. The professional standard of care does not require perfection in the performance of a design professional services. Um, Design professionals must be wary of contract terms that attempt to transfer project risks, including climate related risks, with language that elevates the standard of care. There are numerous contract terms and conditions that should be considered by each stakeholder. For example, even if the design professional believes that its design will achieve a successful, sustainable, and resilient result, the design professional should avoid giving warranties or guarantees or certifications of their services. Under the professional standard of care, some degree of imperfection is tolerated, but a warranty expands the design professional's potential liability. And it could also be an uninsurable risk, excluded from coverage under the contractual liability exclusion of the professional liability policy. So, my third chapter on contracting practices provides practical advice about some of the important terms and conditions that design professionals should consider when drafting and negotiating a professional services agreement.
0: Well, great. I, I think I think that we've we've covered. Uh quite a bit here. I, 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 I read the book. Uh, I, I confess not the entire book because it's huge, but I, I read most of it and, and I found it a great read and very informative. I, I, congratulations to you on, on getting that done.
1: Thank you, Jerry. And I enjoyed this podcast today.
0: So um, you've been listening to the uh, Engineering Influence podcast presented by American Council of Engineering Companies and the book Climate Change and the Built Environment is available in the ACC bookstore. Thanks for listening.